Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My friend, she was like, oh, I thought uh, Austin kicked Uber and left out. I said, no. They wanted them to comply with something. We wanted them to comply with something, and Uber and Lyft basically said no, and like uh, a toddler stomped off. Hi, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kebler, and this week, Motherboard is doing Uber Earth, our theme week all about Uber. Why do I series of stories about Uber, you ask? Well, as our managing editor, Adrian Jeffries, points out, Uber is a six-year-old company that is now somehow worth $62 billion dollars. Uber has done this by taking a service that is notoriously corrupt and bad, that's taxis, and replaced it with something that's much more user-friendly. Adrian writes that Uber is one of the few popular tech companies that could, quote, fundamentally change the way we work, play, live, and spend our money. And it's set up to become one of the most powerful corporate titans in the U.S., if not the world. Uber has become so powerful by basically ignoring or changing regulations all over the world. It's got something of a playbook, Adrian says. Quote, at this point, Uber is waging battles in cities around the world, and it's often the same every time. Uber enters a new market, the local livery service and regulators push back. Uber pushes forward, the rules bend, and the company sinks in its roots. That was the playbook, at least. But Uber and its closest competitor, Lyft, just lost a massive battle in Austin, Texas. You might have heard about it. Uber has an UberX service, which allows basically anyone with a car to drive around. In most cities, anyone can drive an UberX, provided they pass Uber's background check and have a car that complies with Uber's standards. But cities are increasingly worried that Uber's background checks aren't sufficient. So cities like Houston and New York City have required drivers to either have a fingerprint background check or, in New York City's case, be fully licensed commercial drivers. Austin recently considered a set of regulations that would have required all UberX and Lyft drivers to pass fingerprint background checks administered by the city. Neither company wanted to comply, and so they started collecting signatures for a ballot initiative called Prop 1 that would have allowed the companies to maintain the status quo. Uber and Lyft, through a political action committee called Rideshare Works for Austin, started a PR offensive and spent $9.1 million on direct mailers, radio ads, and TV ads like this. When 200,000 Austin riders rely on you to get around every month, safety is critical. That's why Uber and Lyft use technology to keep riders and drivers safe. They use address history and social security information to verify a driver's identity, conduct multi-step driving and criminal background checks, including local, state, and national records, and run drivers through terrorism and sex offender screenings. If a driver fails any of those checks, they're rejected by Uber and Lyft. Riders also benefit from advanced security technology. When you request a ride-sharing car, you're shown the name and picture of the driver, their license plate number, and their vehicle. And rideshare passengers can share their real-time location with friends or family, as every trip is tracked and logged by GPS. 
strong background checks, and cutting-edge technology. That's security we can count on. On May 7th, vote for Prop 1 to require Uber and Lyft to keep doing criminal background checks. Let's keep Austin moving safely. On May 7th, Prop 1 is defeated by Austin voters. The measure failed by 12 points. Uber got absolutely trounced which is something that they've never really experienced before. Even though Uber and Lyft wouldn't have been required to comply with the new regulations till February, both of them announced that they were pulling out of Austin effective immediately, as if they'd never even been there. This podcast is going to explore what happened in Austin, what it might mean for the rest of the country, and what the fall has been in Texas. What's it like to not have Uber? It sounds like a super first world question to ask, but considering how pervasive the company has become and how many people work for it, and how many people have come to rely on it? Well, it's kind of crazy to have the rug pulled out from under you like that. Austin has even gone so far as to set up job fairs and a hotline for ex-Uber drivers who have lost their jobs. In a lot of ways, this flashpoint is probably the most important political battle Uber and Lyft have ever been involved in. And it's not even over yet. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and several state lawmakers say that they will consider passing legislation that would regulate ridesharing at the state level, making Austin's regulations totally moot and allowing Uber and Lyft to re-enter Austin. I call up Austin Statesman reporter Nolan Hicks, who has been covering Prop 1 from the newspaper, to run us through everything that's happened and what we can expect from here. So I'll try to walk you through it just sort of chronologically. Uber itself began widespread operation in the city in uh, the summer of 2014. The city had been working on coming up with sort of a long-term set of rules for Uber and Lyft to operate under. But in September, a councilman on the city council at the time by the name of Chris Riley sort of introduced what he called or sort of described as a pilot program that would allow Uber and Lyft to begin operating in the city legally while the Citizens Committee taking a look at coming up with longer term regulations sort of continued its work. So that was passed in October 2014. And sort of the sticking point to this is when they were debating those regulations in September of 2014, there were sort of a couple of provisos, one of which is you had uh, sort of this proviso that the program was a pilot program. It was, you know, sort of everyone, a lot of the folks voting on it were sort of voting on it in the mindset that the regulations they were about to pass were temporary. And sort of the second part is, is that fingerprinting was a part of this debate all the way back then. So there was a councilwoman at the time who was still on the city council by the name of Kathy Tova, who put up an amendment to the rules that would have done a couple of things, one of which is it would have changed the background checks that cab drivers in the city go through, and it would have subjected Uber and Lyft drivers and other drivers for ride-hailing services, whether the apps get me or, or, or whichever one, um, to the same requirements, which is to say it was going to modify the existing system, which only looked at state offenses and local offenses, to make it a national check a national finger-based print check, and then it would have covered Uber and Lyft drivers and made them go through the same process. So that was a part of the debate, although it wasn't a huge part of the debate, as far back as September of 2014. And then when the new city council was elected in the fall of 2015 and begins looking at all these regulations all over again, in December of 2015, passes a stricter set of regulations that require Uber and Lyft drivers to go and get fingerprinted with the goal that by February of 2017, if you're a driver for Uber or Lyft or another ride-hailing service, you've gone through the fingerprinting-based background check process the same way that cab drivers in the city and pedicab bikers in the city have to go through. And Uber and Lyft uh, were vociferously opposed to the new tighter regulations, and a lot of the friction seemed to center around 
the fingerprinting requirement, though the 2015 rules also required that Uber and Lyft beyond fingerprinting that they'd have to have their cars marked when folks were driving for them, although most drivers already do that with a little lit up mustache in the window or with the, the U icon or whatever. Uh, and then there were a couple other requirements, including that the Uber and Lyft would have to provide additional data to the city so that way the city's transportation department could see how many folks they were picking up, how many folks they were dropping off, what neighborhoods they were serving, and, and you know just sort of get the basics of it. So there are a couple of points sort of on this list, one of which is, in other cities, take uh, New York and Houston most prominently, Uber drivers failing services already have to be fingerprinted. In fact, in New York, you have to have a hack license to drive for Uber and Lyft. In Houston, drivers have to be fingerprinted. Uh, they have to undergo a drug screening. They have to undergo a physical. Their car has to be inspected by the city. They have to keep a fire extinguisher in the back. So the rules in Houston and New York are far stricter than the rules that the Austin City Council was attempting to impose. So all this gets you to January 2015, when Uber and Lyft start collecting signatures to put the new city council rules on the ballot. So basically what Proposition 1 was, was Proposition 1 was repealing the 2015 ordinance and by and large replacing it with the 2014 pilot program, which they were very much in favor of and lobbied for the passage of. So that's a lot of stage setting to basically say that they put this measure on the ballot and then spent $9.1 million dollars through their political arm, ride-sharing works for Austin to campaign for this measure in the city, and then ended up losing by 12 points, which was just an absolutely stunning outcome considering the amount of money spent. I mean, we're talking about $9.1 million in Austin. I mean, it looked like it felt like they were buying every piece of airtime of advertising that could be bought in the city. There were double-truck ads in the Statesman. You know, you watch TV and you'd see an ad for them every half hour. I mean, it was it was just total saturation. Something that no one had ever really seen before in municipal politics. The previous record for spending in a municipal race in Austin was actually set in the 2014 Austin mayoral race by the current mayor who spent $1.2 million. So we're talking about nearly eight times the previous record, and they lost by 12 points. So I mean, the whole thing was just an astonishing chapter in Austin municipal politics sort of from the get-go, where you have corporations using the ballot initiative to try to overturn regulations and then spending $9 million and then getting pretty badly beaten at the polls. You know, people in Austin use Uber and Lyft. Presumably, they didn't want them to leave town. Why do you think they got, you know, so smashed? So, all right. And the answer is nobody has a really good answer yet because the anti-Prop 1 folks didn't have a lot of money to do advertising and do polling, whereas the pro-Prop 1 folks did. But in a lot of campaigns, you're covering a campaign and someone has poll numbers they really like, so they leak them to the press. Um, That didn't really happen this time. There are a couple of anecdotes here that, make me think the outcome wasn't a huge surprise. For instance, they spent $9 million on this campaign, but they didn't throw an election night party, which if you're going to spend $9 million on a campaign, an election night party you know, wouldn't even show up on, on the expense report, you'd think, really. So that was kind of surprising. There were a lot of folks that we talked to in the course of writing all the stories that we wrote that seemed turned off by the amount of money that they were spending, like that they had gotten so many flyers in the mail. And there were folks who were getting four or five or six flyers a day in some cases. Right. So um, regulations are supposed to go into place in February of 2017. But both Uber and Lyft kind of said, uh, you know, to hell with you. And they pulled out immediately. Yeah, immediately following the vote. So it was like a week or two out from the actual vote. Lyft came out and said, voters of Austin, if you don't approve Proposition 1, we're pulling out Monday after the election. And then the week before the election, Uber came out and basically made the same threat, say, hey, voters of Austin, if you don't vote for Proposition 1, we're going to leave Monday 8 a.m. And come Monday, they both left. 
it was a threat that was made sort of in the heat of the campaign. So I think there were some folks who wondered if they actually would go through with it. And then there were a lot of folks who, again, looked at New York and looked at Houston and said, well, if you can operate with much stricter requirements up there, what's the problem with our requirements here? So Uber and Lyft are now gone. I I would assume Mm -hmm. temporarily, but who knows? Um, It's been about like 10 days or something, maybe? Not even. It's been a week. So the election was May the 7th. They pulled out May the 9th. So we are day eight of the Uber Lyft withdrawal. Right. And what is what is Austin like without Uber and Lyft? There have been people complaining about, you know, lines for cabs at the airport. There have been folks complaining about it being more difficult to get home from the bars at night. The statesman had a really good piece today, which looked at a couple of folks who are advocates for uh, the disabled in the city who say that they've had more trouble getting around because while Cat Metro provides bus service, being able to just have a car come and pick them up made it easier for them to get out and about in the city. So I think there's sort of a couple of things to keep in mind, one of which is obviously it pulled a lot of cars out of service. And so some folks, it seems, are having trouble getting around with the ease that they used to have. But Uber and Lyft had only been in the city legally for not even a year and a half. So they started in June of 2014. They pulled out in May of of 2016. So they'd been in the city for not even two years. So there are a lot of folks responding like, well, we got around town two years ago without a problem. You know, what's what's the big deal? You know, their city in the following years over that two-year span has also expanded its bike sharing program, sort of like City Bike up there in New York. You can ride the bus. Cat Metro has a nifty app that lets you, you know, sort of sort through the bus routes that are by you and buy tickets with your phone and all the rest of it. One of the big cab companies in town, Yellow Cab, has an app. There are a lot of folks who say that it's not that good, but it does exist. So you can theoretically order a cab from your phone to help sort of expedite the getting a ride home at night. You know, folks can walk, folks can carpool. So so there's sort of a litany of options out there, you know. Uber and Lyft had, had been around for a while and they sort of gained a tremendous cachet with a certain demographic in the city. And there are folks who are complaining about, you know, waits for cabs and and whatnot now that they're gone. But at least for me personally, life has not been fundamentally changed by the pullout of Uber and Lyft. But for other folks who were depending on them to get around, especially for folks who are disabled and we're using them to, to get out and about at night when bus service isn't as good, there seems to have been some impact. Is it kind of crazy like how quickly Uber and Lyft integrated themselves into the city and became like this big forceful infrastructure and then how suddenly it was gone and like the impact it's had. I mean, it's just kind of like, this would not have been possible a few years ago. Well, I mean, so I guess there's sort of a lot of different ways to look at it, right? One of which is we don't really know how many passengers they were carrying, right? We don't really know how many people were driving for them um, because they never shared that data. So that makes it hard to sort of, you know, examine the impact except by looking at, well, what is the effect of their pullout. You know what I'm saying? So there's this, so there was sort of a lack of overall information, like how many drivers did they have? At one point, they were saying more than 10,000. At another point during the campaign, they were saying they had more than 50,000 people driving for them in the Austin area. The Austin area has a population, uh, you know, Austin itself has a population of like 850,000, 900,000 people. Um, so, I mean, that would that would have meant that, you know, five or 6% of the overall city population was driving for, for Uber and Lyft which seems a little mind-boggling when you consider there are only 900 cabs that are authorized to operate in the city. But at the same point, there had always been complaints about how hard it was for folks to get home, especially if you were going out after a night on the town. Because 
again, you know, there were only 900 cabs and that 900 cab number is actually up from where it was a year or two ago because the city increased the number by, I think it's 150. So there've always been complaints about how hard it was to get a cab home. There were always complaints about how infrequent the late night bus service was and, and how few places those buses ran. So it's kind of easy to understand how quickly they became enmeshed in at least that portion of sort of the city's culture. And sort of the interesting thing is how the city is going about trying to respond to their absence. So you had the hotline, which was set up. You know, you had this proposal that was rolled out, you know, which they said had been in the works for a while uh, to partially deregulate the city's current cab business, which could be approved as early as August. So you've had those two responses. But on the other hand, you know, I think a lot of folks are sort of looking around at the response and wondering, well, should the city be doing more to help folks get around, you know, in terms of how can you increase service, you know, to help disabled folks who used to depend on Uber and Lyft get around more easily? Is there, you know, an idea for maybe expanding bus service to help folks get home late at nights? And it seems like those sort of more concrete proposals haven't really gotten rolled out or worked out yet, you know? So sort of like the hotline and this jobs fair, sort of like the two most tangible things the city has done to respond to the absence so far, at least immediately with sort of this potential cab deregulation thing a few a few months down the road. You know, it is sort of remarkable that the city's responding, but at the same time, it seems like the city's response seems like it's still leaving some stuff on the table, potentially, if that makes sense. How do you think this will all shake out, both in terms of Uber and Lyft's future in Austin or lack thereof, and uh, in terms of local politics, like, do you think that this will put certain lawmakers' jobs at risk because, you know, they killed Uber or because they stood up to Uber? Maybe they'll get, you know, reelected or what, what's like the sentiment like right now? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was sort of the implicit threat you know, that that Uber and Lyft, you know, were making when they went to the polls, which is we're going to go to the polls, we're going to show you just how popular we are. And that didn't work. So if anything, you know, say you're Uber and Lyft and you want to operate in Austin, but you've sort of drawn the line in the sand under this fingerprinting thing. You said, we're not going to be here if you guys fingerprint. And the city council said, okay, and stuck to their guns. And then so you went and put an initiative on the ballot and you lost. I mean, it doesn't provide a great incentive for the city to go like, oh, hey, we just had an election. We won, you lost, but now we're going to compromise on the thing the election was about. It's really interesting to see because Uber has basically won almost every other place it's gone, like when they've had a similar type thing. And it seems like, you know, they threaten to pull out and then there's a revolt by the people who use Uber and then lawmakers sort of change their mind and say, okay, you can operate here. And that's happened in many, many cities. And this is, you know, Austin has sort of pushed back against that. And I'm wondering if maybe more cities will do that now. And this seems like it could have been really like a quite a shot across the bow for Uber, especially since they spent so much money here and lost. Yeah. And that was sort of the theory, right? I mean, the previous record was for spending was $1.2 million. So your Uber, your, your Lyft, you come to town and you don't spend $1.2 million or $2 million or $3 million or $4 million, you spend $9 million. And so the question is, why spend $9 million in a municipal election in Austin? And there were a lot of folks in town who thought this was Uber and Lyft trying to send a signal to other cities across the country that are considering similar rules to say, if you guys pass these rules, we're going to come and we're going to fight you guys tooth and nail and we're going to spend tremendous amounts of money to do it. As Nolan mentioned, the rideshare PR initiative seems to have backfired. In fact, Uber even paid former Austin Mayor Lee Leffingwell to promote Prop 1, going as far as to call on his military experience. This didn't really sit well with a lot of people. Well, the ballot language is very confusing. It certainly looks like it was made to deliberately confuse voters. And frankly, 
That, that's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. And so I think it's incumbent on every voter to make sure that they not rely on the ballot language, but on their own understanding of what a for or against vote means. A vote against Prop 1 means that the responsibility for conducting background checks for criminal and driving histories would devolve to the city at a cost to taxpayers, as opposed to the companies bearing that expense if you vote for Proposition 1. I'm proud of my service uh, to my country. Safety has always been a part of my DNA. A vote for Prop 1 is a vote for strong background checks and city oversight of ride-sharing operations. Before you go to vote, make sure you go to the website voteprop1.com so that you can be fully informed. I hope you'll join me in voting for Prop 1. We don't know why Prop 1 failed, but motherboard contributor Roland Bishop lives in Austin and tracked down some locals to get their thoughts on what happened. It's clear from his interviews that more than a few people were annoyed with how Uber seemingly tried to buy their way around the city's regulations. I don't understand why Uber and Lyft decided not to comply with what was requested by the city of Austin, because if other you know, companies are expected to follow those same policies, I guess I just don't have a good understanding of why Uber and Lyft wouldn't follow them. The one thing I didn't like is how Uber and Lyft pretty much bullied the city, uh, the people of the city, to get whatever they want. So I voted against them because um, I'm kind of getting tired of them bullying us or bu even bullying other cities to get whatever they want so they don't, they can have all the regulations benefit them and not the drivers or the riders. Right before the vote, I think we got a flyer every day, um, sometimes two in the same day regarding the proposition. I kind of feel like it actually hurt them maybe uh, because they were sending so many to people and everybody started to question like, why does this large company, uh, why do they want this so bad? Why are they investing so much money to get their proposition passed. I guess I felt a little overwhelmed by all of the, I guess I wouldn't call it propaganda, but the signage everywhere. I felt like I couldn't go anywhere without signs. I had two text messages randomly from people I didn't know saying, hey, this is Jim from Uber, you know, vote for Prop 1. And I was like, okay, Jim, I don't know who you are. You know, I wasn't too happy about that. I would have. I would really like to ask them why they didn't seek some sort of other agreement other than just leave, leaving completely. Because I kind of feel like they left some people high and dry that had been very loyal and working with them, working for them. I think the um, their decision to leave is. I feel like they're just throwing a little hissy fit because they're not getting their way, and they want to force everyone to do everything their way. And pretty much what I tell them is like, you know, that might work right now, but it's going to come to an end. Austin is a big city, but it still is sort of a small community feeling to it. Um, and that you can't just come in here and think, well, if we spend a bunch of money and like throw our weight around, Austin will just essentially cede to whatever we want. Um, 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And, you know, they needed to have much more community outreach and deal with what the community actually wanted instead of sort of be like a Goliath coming in and just smashing things. Honestly, the money they spent on all of this advertising, because there were ads on Hulu, Hulu of all things, like constantly I was seeing this ad where this man and woman were waiting for, I guess, a ride. And this like carriage comes up and it's like, do you want that instead of Uber or Lyft? I love the, the people I met. I mostly, I mean, the money was just okay. You know, it wasn't certainly couldn't make a living. I mean, I have a, I have a, a couple of kids and, um, you know, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't support them on, on that alone. But, um, uh, the, the culture and, and the people that I met and, um, you know, just the sort of experience of it were, were fantastic. I mean, I, I just sort of came down to you know, do whatever it took to kind of keep them around. Uh, at the same time, I, I also hear and agree with, you know, just the, the whining they did and the money they spent just certainly came off as disingenuous. Um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't have minded getting, getting fingerprinted. And, um, I mean, I don't know what it would have cost Lyft and Uber to implement that program and, and, and why they were so adamantly against it. But um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I really was was I, w- I I voted for Prop One. I mean, I just thought it was over the top and unnecessary. You know, um, it, it really it really was an obvious attempt at buying an election or buying a vote. Um, and I, I saw through it. I thought voters saw through it, and I thought that's why it ultimately failed. I found this really weird uh, local news segment that came on a few months ago, like really right before things got superheated, and uh, it actually had this like very it, terrifying and intimidating thing. It's like a stranger pulls up, and then it's like audio of someone saying, hey, I'm here for my Uber, and then it was just like, and they don't know where they're going, and you're like, the doors being locked and someone like shrieking and it seriously like showed like a map of Austin with like Uber cars on it and disappearing into the darkness. It was like this absurd local news propaganda piece that just made me laugh so hard and also kind of enraged at the same time. Uh, but I don't feel Uber when they were doing like their commercials were really pleading their case in that good of a way afterwards. I called up Uber and they declined to comment or be interviewed for this podcast. So what does this mean for you if you don't live in Austin? Well, maybe nothing, but it probably will mean something eventually. As I mentioned before, Uber has played this game before a lot of times. In fact, Rick Claypool, research director at the Public Citizen Think Tank, just published a paper called Disrupting Democracy, How Uber Deploys Corporate Power to Overwhelm and Undermine Local Government. The paper looks at several different cities and sees exactly what Uber did to basically influence local law. I think um, the main point of the paper is that Uber is a company, it's a $50 billion corporation, and it has just so much 
um, political power that it can bring to bear on these uh, efforts. So it's really concerning for local democracy that a corporation like this can just kind of put its thumb on the scales so strongly to really inundate a city and uh, sort of attempt to discipline local lawmakers in such a way that you know they want sort of a uh, version uh, of city regulations that is friendliest to the company or else. Does Uber have notably more power than, say, telecom companies or other large companies that kind of insert themselves into local government? I mean, there is something unique about Uber there because, you know, unlike a telecom company or, you know, unlike many other sort of that, you know, businesses that operate um, within a city, what the company requires in terms of infrastructure in order to operate and start going is very minimal. So they can credibly threaten to, to say, we're going to, it's my way or the highway and we're going to go. It's much more credible coming to something that's just, you know, through an app versus uh, something that has, you know, brick and mortar buildings, you know, in a particular place. I mean, they say they have, you know, they have no employees and they have no cars. And so they have really their, what their investment is in the actual place is, is minimal. So they have um, uh, an extraordinary amount of leverage in that sense. Right. This is something that uh, my editor-in-chief, Derek Mead, brought up when I was talking to him about this podcast earlier. He said it's kind of like a factory leaving town, but instead of it taking 10 years, it takes, you know, two days or like over, happens overnight. Would you agree with that assessment? In terms of like what they're able to do, uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of whenever people are afraid of, um, I guess you can see that there's the sort of the larger scale situations where, okay, people are um, are afraid of, you know, companies, say, you know, flying from a locality for, for, for tax purposes or something like that. So I guess if if that's the analogy that you're following, I can I can see how that could work just in terms of like here the company that can just sort of rapidly withdraw. But I think what makes it not apply, however, is that you know the company also has this ambition of of being everywhere, right? This sort of you know Uber everywhere thing that you know it's not like well if the factory withdraws from one city, the next that's going to be still available in the city next door or the city uh, upstate um, here. It's everywhere at the same time. And so there is a sense that you're, you know, not only are you as it left, but you're sort of, you're being left out of, of something else that's, that's happening elsewhere. Does Uber have a playbook for these types of things? I mean, is Uber's tactics in Austin, you know, substantially different from ones in D.C. or Boston or all these other cities where they've kind of gone through this whole like rigmarole? You know, you would have to ask them, but it certainly looks like they do. I mean, it looks like they, 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 you know, sort of come in. They are often challenged by some sort of local regulator or law enforcement. That challenge leads to uh, the sort of, you know, save Uber campaign. Uh, and then things escalate from there. And as, you know, city council or mayor, you know, decides to raise the stakes, uh, Uber will raise it right along with them up until the point where, you know, they're also lobbying the, the state legislatures uh, for sort of more uh, what they would say is sort of uniform regulations that would um, basically just preempt what those um, local uh, rules are. Um, I mean, the exception to that is, is Illinois, where the uh, state level regulations actually that were coming through were actually going to be stronger. And then um, they were making the case that, you know, well, then it should be regulated at the local level and not at this, you know, 
broad statewide level. So that, you know they'll, they'll make both arguments. But um, there's definitely a pattern evident in all these places. Other interesting aspects of the pattern is you know whenever things do escalate, you'll see maybe if there's a particular legislator who is the sponsor of the bill that they're opposing, that they will directly uh, attack them. You know within the app, um, they'll also often employ um, the sort of revolving door effort, whereas they have their the various sort of lobbyists from, from outside coming in. They'll, they'll also very much uh, rely on a local spokesperson. So, you know, in Austin, ride-sharing works got uh, Mayor Leffingwell and, and paid him $50,000 to be a um, sort of a spokesperson for the company's points of view. In Boston, when the police commissioner was a, an outspoken critic of the company, well, at the city council meetings, the company got the former police commissioner to be a spokesperson to, to counteract that. In New York City, it seemed like, I guess, probably a good half of Bill de Blasio's Rolodex might have been pushing back against the regulations that they were trying to pass. They definitely try to have a pattern of trying to use people who are close to whoever they're trying to ratchet up the pressure on. Do you think Uber is an evil company? I mean, there's no such thing as an evil company. I mean, you know, companies are, you know, they don't have thoughts. They don't have they don't. They're not. The, the company is is not evil. What what is evil, um, or maybe I even say it, if it's if it's not evil, but what's problematic is that here is this corporation which all it's supposed to do is make money for its investors. There's not really any responsibility beyond that. If it you know can sort of run over a local democracy in order to to make that happen, in order to expand, then that's what it'll do. But it's nothing to do with with good or evil or you know that, that kind of a thing, it is just if we allow any corporation to be able to sort of tip the scales of local democracy in that way, it means that what policy is ultimately for is uh, helping the corporations make more money because that's what they want. This all feels uh, a little hopeless, which I hate to say, but um, does it feel hopeless? I mean, what can I, a mere you know person, do? against a large corporation like this, especially one that admittedly has a very good service that a lot of people would like to have in their town? You know, that that is a terrific question. I don't have a good one uh, answer except to say that there is a growing you know, democracy movement in this country you know, in response to just corporate money in politics and sort of you know, uh, voter suppression activities and actively sort of trying to... Um, to, to really reclaim democracy to work for the public. So it's this is one manifestation of that. You see it in other places where there are other sort of where whether it's, you know, you see big companies sort of setting the agenda in ways that prevent other kinds of laws and policies from being enacted that might be more beneficial to the public but doesn't subsume profit, you know, to, to everything. I think this is just another base of that, and I think a lot of people are feeling this. You know, I've been following corporate power issues for a while now, and I'm more optimistic now than I've been in a long time just because it seems like a lot of people are really kind of connecting the dots. As people tend to do, Austin has made the best out of a bad situation. Other ride-sharing companies have popped up, and amazingly, some DIY alternatives have emerged. The Craigslist ride-sharing section is filled with former Uber drivers offering to drive people around under the table. A decentralized ride-sharing alternative called Arcade City Austin has popped up too. And then there's Austin Underground Rideshare Community, a Facebook group founded by Michael Humphreys that has almost 6,000 users already. Basically what we did 
or what I did is started a page to where people could connect because I was running through my brain um, as to what the real value of Uber and Lyft was. And one of the first things I thought of was GPS. And I was thinking, well, we all have GPS on our phones nowadays, right? And then the other thing I was thinking was when I analyzed it, I realized that all Uber and Lyft are are a place for people to connect. I mean, whether we have Uber or Lyft or any other company, we still have people that need rides on a daily basis, people that have handicaps, disabilities, um, revoked licenses. Um, we have 10,000 displaced drivers that, that were left by Uber and Lyft. And we have upwards of 500,000 riders whose problems don't can't wait for the city and the companies to, to work out their feud. So I made a place to where that they can connect and a rider will post their need for a ride. And then if a driver's available, he can answer that with a text message or the, his phone number, and then they make a connection and whatever happens after that, I have no idea. It doesn't concern me. Right. So presumably people are, you know, organizing a price or a donation type thing for, you know, a ride to the bar, a ride home from the bar? Well, we've advertised the page and I've, I've done it all. I'm the only administrator. So <clears throat> I know everything that's going on with it. We have, I've made the page a support group um, and given people the option that if they want to make a donation or a barter or whatever, um, then they're allowed to. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. It's like if you ask your neighbor if you can have a ride to the store and he says, sure, and you toss him some gas money. I mean, I think it's just normal. Uh, it's a normal deal. Although I have drivers that have given several free rides as well. I mean, so the I guess the community works however it wants to. It's negotiated between whoever makes a connection. Do you have any idea how many uh, rides have been taken through this group? As far as I can tell, hundreds. I mean, I've watched everything. I've had to approve every single group member other than uh, other than additional group members that were added by group members. I've watched it. I've tried to monitor it as best as possible. We want it to be clean. We don't want debate topics. We don't want advertisements. I mean, this thing needs to be easy for people to use, and it needs to be efficient. I'm just a local guy. I've been in Austin my whole life, and I'm just trying to do something for the people of Austin, including myself, which is how this idea started. I like to go out and drink. I like to be responsible, and I like to use Uber and Lyft. Well, they're gone, so we had to figure something else out. How has Austin responded to, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft pulling out? Like, besides this one thing, I mean, I, lots of drivers are out of work. Like, what has the general reaction been? I think that people are still in shock. I think it took a little while for the initial shock to wear off. And that's kind of coincides with the idea of the page on my end as well. It's just, uh, you know, trying to make plans to go out, trying to figure out where I'm going to go and how I'm going to get there and reaching down. Um, because I'm sure as many people, I still have my Uber and Lyft apps and just clicking on it and realizing that you're not going to get an answer. So I think that I think that, that a little bit of that shock is still going on. Um, I also think that there are people there have snapped right out of it and, and recognized the fact that, uh, you know, that what I'm doing, I think, is right, which is connecting people. I mean, I, I think that uh, I think the drivers are happier without a middleman. Um, I think that the riders are happy. I still think that there's a shortage. 
of drivers. I still think there's gaps in the in the system. But again, you know, I didn't create a company. I create a Facebook page because I'm a normal guy. So as I learn more and more about this and as we progress and as we grow, I'm also learning on ways to make this easier for everyone and more efficient. It doesn't seem like you're doing anything even remotely illegal, but uh, do you anticipate hearing from like city council or any sort of officials on this project? You know, I've anticipated it. We're not getting any negative feedback. In other words, we're not having people riot and argue on the page and we're not having, I'm not, my inbox isn't full of negative comments. Everything has gone smoothly. Everyone has um, been very cordial up to this point. And if I see something I don't like, I'll delete it, warn them. And if they do it again, then they'll be removed from the group. Other than that, I think everything's gone pretty smoothly. And if someone came to you and said, hey, uh, we want to make this something a little more serious, like we want to build an app for it, or, you know, make another sort of platform for it to, to connect people more easily. Would you be interested in making it into something more serious? You know, I've had I've had all kinds of messages and emails and all kinds of stuff has come up. Um, I'm not going to put it completely off the table right now. But what I will say is, is that if I were to accept such a deal, it would have to guarantee some type of benefit to the community. I mean, it would have to benefit the riders. It would have to benefit the drivers. I mean, I don't want this happening again. I mean, this is the ride share version of an Enron deal, and I don't want this to ever happen to these drivers again. These these people are regular people just like me, and I don't think that they should ever be in a put in a position again to where they can be dependent upon a specific income and then be abandoned. So if I were to accept something like that, I would definitely have to have that in. In Austin, Uber and Lyft are gone. Maybe they'll be back. And it sounds like people in Austin are a fairly forgiving bunch. Oh, I was really impressed by Uber services, and I would use them. If they came back to Austin, I would use them. So if they're, if they're willing to come back, I, just, just like the mayor said, you know, they're willing to come back to the table to discuss, you know, so is the city. But if they think they're just going to get what they want out of everyone here, that's not going to happen. Keep moving. I would like to see them come back. However, not on their terms. Bigger cities like in Houston, uh, I believe Lyft does not operate, but Uber does. And they did comply with their fingerprint, you know, ordinance. So I'm like, why is it that you, you think you can be different with Austin? But I know that they were trying to use Austin's market as an example. but that greatly backfired because I think Uber and Lyft did not understand how unique Austin's culture is in relation to the rest of the state. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I wish they were back. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Mark Bruni for editing this. And thanks to Roland Bishop for collecting interviews for me on the ground in Austin. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, if you haven't, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. It helps us a lot. Thanks a lot. I'm Jason Kebler, and we will see you next week.